0: A little Ohio Mysteries business before we get started tonight. I am happy to announce that we have launched a phone number if you'd like to call and leave us a feedback on our episode, suggest another mystery, or just in general, tell us what a great job we are doing. It is 234-738-0966. Again, that is 234-738-0966. We are looking forward to hearing from you. And now... On with the show. Welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of Hard Road Coming by Columbus singer-songwriter Mark Zanakis. Mark is our featured Ohio music artist tonight, so hang out with us to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you a little bit more about him and let you listen to that entire song. right, now let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal.
1: Hi, everyone. All right, Steve, we have done several stories on missing college students before. Do you remember some of them? Uh, I remember we did, uh, a Baumgartner? Ruth Baumgartner, 1937, Ohio Wesleyan.
0: Yeah, Alright, and then uh, there was one with, uh, and was it a Fish Hall was it Tam- Tam- Tamman?
1: Ron Tamman, a yes. 1953 Enigma at Miami University.
0: Oh, and that's all I can think of right now.
1: Well, we also did the 1950 disappearance of Mansfield's Richard Colvin Cox at oh, West yes. Point Military Academy in New York and the vanishing of Judy Martin's from the Kent State University campus in 1978. That's right, Judy Martins. Now, all of these stories have really become rather legendary, but the poster child for missing college students in Ohio has got to be Brian Schaefer, an Ohio State University med student who seemingly disappeared into thin air just 14 years ago. The last image we have of Brian Schaefer is a grainy visual from a surveillance video at a bar. He was there one minute, gone the next, and no trace of him has ever been found. So let's review what we do know. Brian Schaefer was born February 25, 1979 to Randy and Renee Schaefer, the oldest of two sons. His younger brother was Derek. The boys grew up in the Columbus suburb of Pickerington, by all accounts, a happy childhood with summer vacations at the beach and doting parents who loved them both. Pickerington isn't far from the OSU campus, so it surprised no one that Brian ended up there. He spent six years collecting his degree in microbiology and then in 2004 embarked on his medical degree, At the Ohio State University College of Medicine. In 2006, he was 27 years old and closing in on the end of his second year in med school. Brian was one of those guys who had everything going his way. In the words of his girlfriend, Alexis Wagoner, he's brilliant, he's handsome, he's sweet and loyal and caring. Alexis spoke to Dateline NBC for a story shortly after his disappearance. It happened on Friday, March 31, 2006, when classes at OSU let out for spring break. Brian kicked off his vacation by going out for a steak dinner with his dad, Randy. Brian needed some time off. He was exhausted from some long all-nighters preparing for exams. He was emotionally spent as well. Brian's mom, and Randy's wife of 29 years, had died of cancer just three weeks earlier. Brian and Randy spent dinner consoling each other in their grief. Brian also checked in with his brother Derek that day. The two had become closer since losing their mother. They couldn't talk long, but promised to find time to spend together. And around 9 p.m., Brian met his friend, Clint Florence, to let off some steam bar hopping. They were former roommates and drinking buddies. And the night started out like most of the others. They went to the Ugly Tuna Saluna, a bar in the South Campus Gateway Complex on High Street. It occupied the second floor of a brick block. Its neon sign outside touted, Fresh Fish, Ugly Owners. Alexis was visiting her family in Toledo that weekend, but she and Brian planned to spend the rest of the week in Miami, Florida. They were flying out on Monday. Brian loved tropical locations. He'd even told friends that while he was pursuing a medical career, what he really wanted to do was play in a Jimmy Buffett style band on a beach somewhere. An hour into his evening with Clint, Brian checked in with Alexis. The couple was looking forward to the trip for another reason as well. Everyone suspected Brian was going to propose. Alexis talked to him briefly. He sounded fine. Then Brian and Clint continued their pub crawl through the southern part of the campus and into the arena district. They downed a shot of liquor at each tavern they visited. After midnight, as March 31 rolled over into April Fool's Day, the pair ran into Meredith Reed, a friend of Clint's, and she gave them a ride back to where they started the night, at the Ugly Tuna. Surveillance tape shows them at 1.15 a.m. coming up the escalator to the bar, which, as I said, was on the second floor of the building. Brian was leaning casually on the handrail, dressed in his jeans and an olive t-shirt. He wore a yellow cancer bracelet in memory of his mom. Once inside the bar, the trio ran into a couple of women Clint knew. At 1:55 a.m., the surveillance camera captured the image of Brian talking to the women just outside the bar. Then he walked out of the frame at an angle that presumed he was going directly back into the bar. A few minutes later, it was last call. Time to finish up and head out. Clint and Meredith looked around to collect Brian, but they couldn't find him. They called his cell phone. Nobody answered. They checked the bathroom. It was empty. They went back down the escalator and stood on the sidewalk waiting for him to show up. When he didn't, they assumed Brian must have left without them, and so they went home themselves. Saturday passed without a word from Brian, and by Sunday morning, his father Randy and his girlfriend Alexis were really concerned. But they waited until Monday morning, when Brian missed the flight to Miami to report him missing to the Columbus police. Police began their search for Brian at the Ugly Tuna. It was an area that had seen significant crime and there was no doubt Brian drank a lot that night. That could have left him vulnerable. If he had decided to leave his friends and walk to his apartment, which was about six blocks away, he could have been targeted. But could he also have just left on his own? His mom had just died. School was a huge workload. He had a girlfriend expecting a proposal. Is it possible this was just all too much, that he was even under more stress than his closest loved ones realized? One part of the mystery that baffled police was how Brian left the building without being caught on tape. Both bar exits and the escalator that leads to the street are covered by cameras. They also looked at camera footage from other nearby bars, Sloppy Donkey, Mad Mex, Lucky Stout House, hoping it might pick him up. There was nothing. The only access not covered by camera was a service exit in the Ugly Tuna building that led to a construction site. Police said it would have been hard to navigate that construction area sober, let alone drunk. It made no sense that Brian would choose to leave the bar that way, unless he was trying to disappear. Sergeant John Hurst was the lead investigator in the case. After five weeks, he said, Brian had yet to use any of his credit cards. There was absolutely no cell phone usage. No sign of him buying a ticket on any transportation, planes, buses, trains. No taxi drivers remembered picking him up. His car was still parked outside his apartment on King Avenue. Police canines also helped search the area, inspecting dumpsters along Pearl Alley. They tacked up missing posters on telephone poles and shared flyers with local residents. No useful information was gathered. Alexis began a ritual that lasted weeks, a daily pilgrimage to his empty apartment. She said, I came here every single day and just, you know, laid here in the middle of his bed and sobbed. and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loop Serial Killers of Color
2: on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Part of her routine was to call his cell phone before bed. It always went to voicemail. But then, one night in September, something different happened. Instead of going to voicemail, it rang three times. Alexis wrote on her MySpace page, it scared the crap out of me. I had no idea what I would say if a person answered it. An investigation learned that Brian's phone pinged a tower in Hilliard, a suburb 14 miles northwest of central Columbus. But the phone company said, in all honesty, it absolutely could have just been a glitch. Brian had a tattoo on his upper right arm. It was a stick figure that was on the cover of Pearl Jam's debut single, Alive. He loved the band. At a Pearl Jam concert later that year in Cincinnati, lead singer Eddie Vedder took time between songs to ask for tips in Brian's disappearance. And in 2010, four years after Brian went missing, Pearl Jam performed in Columbus, and Eddie Vedder again called attention to Brian by dedicating the song Come Back to him, saying, wherever you are, we're still thinking about you. Tips, of course, poured in. People offered potential sightings from Texas to Sweden. Each was diligently followed up. Randy Schaefer, Brian's dad, was beside himself, first his wife, now his son. He told Dateline that the not knowing was torment. Just not knowing or understanding, he said, what, why, where, how? I mean, there's nothing that really fits. Randy consulted a psychic who told him Brian's body was in water near a bridge pier. He and his surviving son Derek and other volunteers bought waders and started spending all their free time along the shores of the Olentangy River, particularly near bridges. The river flows through Columbus adjacent to the OSU campus, but they never found anything. Columbus police have several theories about what happened. Brian's friend Clint Florence refused to take a polygraph, so that always bothered investigators. Derek Schaefer said he was also bothered by the fact that Clint spoke ill of Brian after he vanished, which seemed a strange thing to do. But there isn't a shred of evidence connecting Clint to Brian's disappearance. Another idea they looked into is that a theoretical serial killer known as Smiley Face might be involved. Here's the thing with that, two New York detectives realized there had been a spate of college educated young white men who vanished after nights out with friends and were later found dead in local rivers. The incidents happened across several Midwest states from the late 1990s into the 2010s. And the detectives came to believe that they may have been the work of one or more killers that were targeting men they saw as privileged. And they coined the term smiley face because in many of these situations, they found a smiley face in graffiti near the body. Columbus police and the FBI considered the idea but mostly dismissed the notion that Brian was part of that scenario. And then, of course, there was the speculation that maybe Brian walked away and started a new life somewhere else, although it's really hard for people who knew him to think he would have done that to his already grieving father. In September of 2008, Randy Schaefer was living in Baltimore, Ohio when a heavy windstorm came through. Randy went into the yard to clear debris when a branch from a tree fell and struck him. Neighbors found his body the next morning. He was one of five people who died in that storm. His obituary online had a place where people could leave sympathies, and soon after his death, his virtual condolence book had an unexpected message. It said, Dad, I love you. Love, Brian. U.S. Virgin Islands. Derek Schaefer, Brian's brother, held his breath when he saw that knowing how much his brother wanted to spend his days on a sun-soaked beach somewhere. But an investigation determined later that the note was posted from a computer in Franklin County, the county where OSU was. It was just a cruel hoax. Shortly after Randy's death, there was an interesting communication that got some public attention. It was an exchange between the attorney representing Brian's buddy, Clint Florence, and a private investigator that was helping the Schaefer family. The conversation was about Clint's ongoing refusal to take a lie detector test. And in it, Clint's attorney told the detective, and here's a quote, if Brian is alive, which is what I'm led to believe after speaking with a detective involved, then it is Brian and not Clint who is causing his family pain and hardship. Brian should come forward and end this. So were police really leaning toward the theory that Brian had run away? Alexis, his girlfriend, said, no way. I can't imagine he would have just done that, she said. But Brian's brother left a small crack open in that window. Derek Schaefer said he suspected that Clint Florence knew more than he was telling. He said, as soon as the detective started getting involved, that's when he pretty much had no contact with anybody. I've always thought he definitely knows something, just won't come forward with it. Then Derek went on to say, if Brian did take off, Quote, we just always had a strong feeling that Clint would possibly know that. Anyway, Columbus police, they still receive tips on Brian's case all the time. Their evidence file now fills four boxes. If you have any information in this case, please call Central Ohio Crime Stoppers at 614 645 8477. Steve, I know this is a story that that you followed for a bit. Do do you lean heavily one way or another on any of these theories?
0: Yeah, I just, I think uh, he had too much to drink and he, you know, something happened. He might have fallen in that river or maybe they were laying concrete uh, at that construction site that was adjacent to the Ugly Tuna and maybe he fell in. I'm not sure, but I think it was an accident. Uh, You know, as far as Clint goes, remember, we're not saying anything negative about Clint. Those are, you know, people saying that stuff about him.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. There was never any evidence that uh, Clint had anything to do with it, and frankly, Clint was calling his cell phone about 2.01, and the camera that caught brian on that sidewalk was four minutes earlier brian disappeared in a four minute window
0: oh wow that's what i it's it's hard to say okay he left he had too many to drink if he was going to run away and start a new life he would not have been able to get away from the cameras around that area that is a big bar area for ohio state there was too many cameras and too many businesses there
1: yeah, that's a good point. I mean, if he was drunk and he wanted to run away, would he have had the mental capacity to work out finding the one exit in the building not covered by a camera? I mean, that just seems like something that would take some planning. Right.
0: Well, I think this is part of the program where we invite an Ohio mystery listener to be an armchair detective.
1: Well, joining us tonight, we have Megan Gibbons, all the way from London, England. How are you, Megan? Hi, Paula. I'm doing well. Thank you. Now, Megan is originally from Bay Village and an Ohio State University graduate. So tell me, how does a Bay Village person from Ohio State get over to London? What's that journey? Oh, my gosh. So I have been living here for the past
3: four and a half years. Um, I'm a nurse. I actually I went to nursing school at Ohio State. And I then started working for the clinic, the Cleveland Clinic, when I graduated. But I had this like really strange, de- not strange, I guess it's a desire everyone has, is just to travel and see the world. And being in nursing school, you, you just can't study abroad, which is something that a lot of college kids get to do. So I kind of did it like later in life. And so I got my nursing license over here, and I've now been living here for the past four and a half years, and I am a, I'm a nurse manager here.
1: So what years were you at Ohio State? So I was at Ohio State from
3: 2008 to 2012.
1: Now, was (laughs) the Ugly Tuna around then? Do you remember that bar?
3: Oh, yeah. We used to go out there a lot. Um, That area, Gateway, was really popular because it was almost like the most southern point of campus. And so, like, if you started your night on central campus, you usually kind of would bar hop and work your way towards, gateway because there were some like more like dancey type, like, oh, we've had a couple drinks, let's go dance kind of bars.
1: So was this story like all that anybody talked about even then? Was this just legendary? You know, I actually feel like it wasn't, and I don't know,
3: maybe because I wasn't from Columbus, but... I feel like I didn't really hear about it until that Lantern article, and I do remember reading that because I think that was 2009 was the Lantern article, and then something I like distinctly remember is seeing his missing like posters, and they were up in every shop on High Street, um, and so once you start seeing those, then Lantern article came out, and then obviously the details came out of not out they're already out there. But I guess it kind of became more well-known, like this guy walked into a bar and never walked out again. What happened?
1: You know, let's just jump to it. I mean, do you have a theory?
3: I actually do have a theory. He probably went out the wrong door. He probably kind of maybe stumbled into like the wrong crowd. I mean, it's well known that there are a lot of people who like target those areas because they know there are drunk College kids who are easy prey. And I wonder if he just kind of like bumped into the wrong guy, maybe got mugged, maybe got robbed, murdered, held at gunpoint, I don't know, and then tossed in a dumpster or something.
1: Now, it also made me wonder, I, you know, I. I haven't seen pictures of what that construction area looked like or whether it was even possible. But if he was drunk, and clearly they had been drinking a lot that night, Mm -hmm. could he have stumbled out into an area where he died accidentally? I mean, could, could there have been somewhere where he would have... Fallen not necessarily into a vat of cement, but into a hole or something that maybe nobody found him there. I mean, I don't know is that possible?
3: That's what I think a lot of the internet likes they like that theory. I think that the 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 idea that there was a construction site there it just seems like kind of like this perfect mix for it. Well, if he didn't go out the front door where it was a safe, you know even ground, he had to manage that back construction site and look at construction workers they're wearing steel-toed boots and hard hats every day and this kid goes in there like eight shots after it's two in the morning and it's really likely that he could have you know broke his neck broke his leg got stuck somewhere got trapped i i think that's probably another that's that's the other likely cause i think of his you know mysterious disappearance
1: there was a brief time that they looked at the theory of this smiley face killer or killers. <laughs> now, they don't have a person in mind for this, mind you. This smiley face idea is just a theory because they had a bunch of young, handsome men in college that died. That Ended made up them in rivers. Somebody was, yeah. And they yeah. thought maybe somebody's out there just targeting privileged people and you know they you know i don't know that that theory kind of hung on for a little bit and then the the police were like look we don't even have any proof that this smiley face person or gang exists what did you think about that i think that is just
3: completely untrue. I've actually watched before, uh, I think it was a whole documentary, like a couple episodes about the smiley face killer. I watched one episode and I had to turn it off because it's it's so far-fetched. These two detectives, retired detectives from New York City are, you know, it's it's interesting because they're finding very, very similar cases, but there's no connection between any of them. They're all just probably kind of similar tragic cases of just really drunk kids stumbling into a river I and then they find the a river. smiley ca- a smiley face. And they think, you know, oh, that's this big, this big clue, but it's, it's not, it's, there's the, connection. Think, the thing with this case is there's a lot of red herrings, even though there aren't actually that many clues. So I was reading that actually that year in Columbus, there were, I think three other young people who went missing. And of those, I guess now four people, including Brian, they all of them the police said oh they they walked out of their life they just wanted to get away they wanted to run away like foul play was never considered for all four of them but then of course you know bodies turned up and things like that I don't think anyone ever thought all the cases were connected but it kind of just goes to show that there is this common occurrence of just bad people out there especially at a college campus where there's you know I think Ohio State is something like 50,000 students and You know, there's all these bars everywhere and there's dark alleys and there's drunk people and there are people who take advantage of that.
1: Probably that's one of the reasons why this wasn't reported until Monday and why even after it was reported, police probably spent a Good deal of time thinking that he was missing of his own accord, because you know when you're you're at a college situation, you're on your own. Your family's somewhere else. Your girlfriend's somewhere else. Her family's somewhere else. And it's so easy to think, oh, he's you know his cell phone isn't working. Uh, He hooked up with some friends and forgot to tell me. He'll uh, you know he'll show up later. You know it's I can see the. The desire to put it off, thinking surely this is just going to get resolved. We just don't know the answer yet. I, it was when he missed that flight to Miami that they that they were finally like, no, this he's definitely not coming back. Yeah, that's when they knew. And I
3: think too, like like you brought up a lot of good points. Like there was so much going on in this kid's life I mean his mom had just died three weeks ago I read that he had actually texted the girlfriend that same week he had texted her once like let's run away together and then the next day he texted her I think we should like cool off so I think he was probably in the mindset that was like very erratic and kind of he was grieving and he was going he was in medical school which is obviously stressful so maybe they were just thinking oh maybe he just needs like some time to himself right now
1: and I think there are probably a lot of instances where kids did just that. I say kids, they're, you know, men and women, but young people did just that. And certainly, I did not know that about you. You found something I didn't know. So he, he was actually hot and cold with his fiance, even just that, well, not even technically his fiance at that time. But in terms of whether or not he was going to propose, he was kind of on and off even that week, huh?
3: Yeah, I found that on, where, what did I watch? I watched a couple, I watched a Dateline episode. I watched, um, this kind of cool, like visual video from a guy called Blame It on Jorge. And I think I saw that there. And so it had been cited, I think, from interviews with, uh, I the uh, Alexis, um, that she had mentioned that that week he had kind of been a little bit, you know, on the fence about everything, uh, but that night, it's, it's well documented that he kept texting her. I can't wait to go to Miami. I can't wait to be there. So he seemed like he was, you know, very willing and intent to go on this trip.
1: Well, that could definitely explain, you know, why they waited till Monday, because, yeah, if if there had even been one point in that entire week where he sounded like he wanted to cool things down, you know, I could see that delaying her just a little bit, like, well, wait a minute, maybe he's taking an extra day to think about it, you know. Right, like, let's not push him, like, I'll, I'll give him his space and kind of see where he is. But it was so hard for me to think that he would have walked away knowing that his dad was grieving the way he did. And, you know, his dad said that that Friday night when they met for dinner, really, it was more about... Brian consoling him because he was grieving so hard. Brian was handling it a little bit better, and he really felt like Brian had been there to console him. That doesn't sound like a kid that's going to turn around that very night then and abandon his father and not tell him what happened, put his dad through that. I just couldn't imagine that happening. No, and I
3: know that I remember reading, in the it was from the Lantern article, when, is it Clint's? Clint's lawyer had insinuated that the Pope, the Columbus police were still thinking that he did walk away and that he did, you know, choose to leave and up and, but it just doesn't make sense. He didn't have any, he didn't have any like money. He didn't, I mean, where would he have gone in this day and age? You can't really vanish. It's just not possible. I mean, look at his cell phone. It pinged in Hilliard it would have pinged all over the place if he had tried to run away.
1: You know, of all the stories we have done on college kids that went missing, there was one that we did where I really believed that the the, the guy had left of his own accord, and that was the Richard... Richard Colvin Cox story. He disappeared from West Point Academy. But you know, yes. when you went back into his background and you read about his childhood and his parents and and you really came away thinking, maybe this is a guy who could just walk away and never call his family again. Not that they were you know brutal against him, but you just didn't see the ties there. And you know, but these other these other cases i you know, I just don't get that feeling,
3: no, not at all, and i again, that was there I remember that story. He was the one that the they've there have been so many sightings of him over the years, haven't there? Um,
1: there was, and a, a yeah. guy that he went to school with at uh, West Point even sat down and had a conversation with him in Washington, and they sat at the same table and had a brief conversation. And, you know, it wasn't like a distant sighting, like I think that was him. He actually talked to him, and yeah, I came away thinking he did walk away. What a what yeah a story that turned out to be. Now, yeah. listen— Clint, uh, the, the buddy, the drinking buddy that Brian was out with, he didn't want to take a polygraph. And, you know, I personally, I have come to learn that there are a lot of reasons why people might not want to take a polygraph or give a statement to police. And I'm probably not as fast to judge as somebody else might be in those situations. I I don't think that necessarily means you you're guilty, but what, what were your thoughts on the fact that he still to this day has never given a polygraph?
3: I agree with you. I think that going back to the timeline through the night, like if you look at, you can watch Clint and the girl go back down the elevator. You know, they're the ones who are calling him at two in the morning saying, where are you, man? I, There's no way that he had time to do anything that was suspicious or, you know, with ill intent. I wonder if, you know, maybe something from that night that he just didn't want to be questioned about under a lie detector test, whether, I don't know, I can't, the only thing I could think of is like, maybe they were like doing drugs that night or something like that, where they just, he didn't want to be questioned about it. Right. and that was honestly the only thing I could think of other than that i he I know he has nothing to do with his disappearance um, yeah. just you know he's just tangled up in it because he was obviously the last person to to be with him.
1: I agree. I think uh he might have something to hide, but I don't think it's that. I don't think it's Brian's disappearance, like you pointed out, it was four minutes what co- what kind of trouble could he have gotten into? He was sitting with a girl in the bar in the four minute period that we lost Brian. So yeah, exactly. I read,
3: I think it was on Wikipedia and I thought it was so interesting that, um, in, in Ohio, Columbus, they have the most, uh, security cameras than Cleveland, Cincinnati, and Toledo combined. So like, apparently every angle of Columbus is on camera. Um, Every angle, but one, of course, the one we (laughs) we wanted, I know. Um, so I think if, you know, if the friend were involved, it would have been probably very obvious. He would have looked, you know, anxious going down the elevator. He wouldn't, it would just be, obviously he's not a person of, of, uh, of interest.
1: Yeah, I agree. Well, what's it going to take to solve this? I mean, if if he was the victim of foul play, I don't see anything happening unless the person who did it just comes forward and admits it. It's not like there's any physical evidence that can be tested. I mean, there's no
3: evidence whatsoever. And that's why it's I think it's just endured so long on like YouTube and on these podcasts and Reddit and things like that because people, it's it drives them crazy because they want to know so badly. And I truly think that the only way is you're right is if someone who was involved came forward, but you know, it's been 14 years. If they didn't, I don't know, guilt, I guess eats away at you for a long time, but it seems so long and the poor family has been
1: through enough. Oh yeah. Absolutely. His poor brother, you know, he, he lost his mom. Then he lost his brother. His dad died in that freak storm accident I mean, what are the chances? It's so tragic. Uh, I feel so bad for him. I I hope he's happy. Wherever he's at, whatever he's doing, I I hope he's got a family and has had a semblance of a happy life. It's just terrible.
3: It it sounds like it. I know I saw one interview that he did on the 10-year anniversary, which was pretty heartbreaking. And the brother was supposed to meet him out that night. And he just said, like, you know, if I was there, what would my life be like now? Like, I would never let him you know anything bad happened to him he said it's guilt that I've carried around for
1: 10 years that's survivor's guilt and it's never rational it's just something you feel and you can't help it but you right know, obviously it's it it would have changed nothing Right. Well, right. Megan, it has been great talking to you about this. It's, it's nice to have somebody who, you know, was at Ohio State so soon afterward and could kind of give us a little perspective from a student down there. So, and yeah, thanks, I mean, and no thanks for reaching yeah. out all the way from London. I know. I'm so happy. I love you guys.
3: It's so nice to hear, you know, I love strange and um, weird and kind of like unknown history. And so whenever I'm in London, I'm trying to find those little little pockets and slices of history which of course are everywhere um but you guys have told me so many ohio stories that i had no clue about and it makes me so happy
0: That's it for tonight, listeners, for photos, news clippings, and more. On this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com.
1: And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. Mark Zanakis is a folk music artist from Columbus, Ohio. We're using a song of his called Hard Road Comin', just a beautiful melody. Mark has done a version of this with and without the violin. I believe we are using the violin version here. It's off his new album Western Prophets, and and if you want to follow mark go look for him on facebook well let's have another listen to hard road coming by mark
0: zanakis and we'll see you here next week for another episode of ohio mysteries ohio mysteries is produced by Stephen yoder and paula schleiss special thanks to our patreon and paypal supporters thank you audionautics daniel birch and adoran for the music and, of course, to all of you who support our show by listening and telling friends and family about us. You can find us on Twitter at Mysteries Ohio. You can find us on Facebook by just searching for Ohio Mysteries. We are also on Instagram at Ohio Mysteries.
5: Did you go far away? Did you hear that old heartbreak? Laying Mexico. from the California ways, you have the boys to blame, bury the pain.